0: As we've seen so far in our studies in the Savior Psalms this summer, Jesus is the Savior begotten, Psalm 2. He is the Savior majestic, Psalm 8. The Savior in the garden of Psalm 16. The Savior of the cross, Psalm 22. The Savior shepherd, Psalm 23. The Savior king, Psalm 24. Sunday we talked about that He's the Savior in the scroll of the book, Psalm 40. And tonight, we're going to skip ahead. I'm actually going to skip beyond some other Psalms that we're going to come back and catch on Sunday and then then the following week. But we're going to jump to Psalm 68 tonight. And there's a reason I'm doing it this way. Psalm 68 tonight. Next week, probably Psalm 69. They're a little longer, so they're more suited, I believe, for a, a study on a Wednesday. And on Sunday, we'll go backward, back to Psalm 41, where He is the Savior Betrayed. But tonight, He's the Savior ascending. The Savior ascending in Psalm 68. This is a marvelous psalm. Another one that is so encouraging. If you just begin with the heading, it's for the choir director, so lots of people are going to be singing. And it's a psalm of David, a song. Well, which one is it? Is it a psalm or is it a song? A psalm in Hebrew means more. And Mitzmor means an instrumental song. And usually those that are just called a Psalm of David, a Mitzmor of David, were written for a particular occasion. So intended for some sp- specific use, some event, some pageantry, something going on, that David decided to write a song for that event, a And a-, a song, because it's not only a Psalm, a Mitzmor of David, it's also a song. A song, the word is "sheer." In the Hebrew, and it means a well known or popular song. And, and you know, I could start singing Jimmy Crack Corn, and you all would join in, because we kind of all know the tune, you know. Why? I don't know, but you know, if you grew up in this country, you probably know. There are several different songs that you can start to hum. I had the whistles tonight. I was home and I was fixing tea, and I could not stop whistling. No matter how many times Cheryl told me to stop, I couldn't stop doing it. But familiar songs, familiar tunes, that's a sheer. And and what's interesting is both titles are used. Well, is it a, a song for a certain occasion, or is it a popular colloquial song that everybody knows and everybody just sings anyway? And the answer is it's both. Kidner, in his commentary, said the double title, Where It Occurs, would indicate a formal poem by David or Asaph, etc., which had become by its popularity virtually an institution. So what's thought is that when you see a psalm of David, a song, the a song was added in later because the psalm of David for a certain occasion became so popular everybody sang it all the time anyway. And that's probably what we're looking at tonight. Psalm 68 will flow in three sections two large sections and then at the end of benediction so part one is verses one through nineteen and this speaks literally of God's ascendancy God's ascendancy and stay with me on that because that sounds a little strange you know to say even out loud God's ascendancy well isn't he high the most high God therefore how can God ascend well I think you know how but we'll get there. God's ascendancy is the first part, verses 1 through 19. Part 2 picks up in verse 20 through verse 32, and that's His people's ascendancy. So God's ascendancy, part 1, the people's ascendancy, part 2, and then finally verses 33 through 35 wraps it up with a final benediction. The original occasion of this song And the reason why we see it as a a song of ascendancy and why I'm titling this the Savior Ascending is that like Psalm 24 that we looked at last week, this was written for the same great procession. Remember, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And that song written when David was bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, this one was as well. In fact, this one was probably sung before that one as they're beginning to come up, bringing the Ark of the, Co- of the Covenant up from Obed-Edom's house in Kiriath-Jerim and marching up six steps at a time up to Jerusalem, up Mount Moriah, to the threshing floor of Aruna that David had purchased for just this occasion. Land, By the way, land purchased by David, what today we call the Temple Mount. You know what's wonderful? Is that land purchased by David, if you want to read the title deed, the deed of sale, it is in your Bible. It is 2 Samuel 24. It's the only title deed for the Temple Mount. So if you want to know who owns the land, David bought it. It belongs to the people over whom David was king. That's where the land goes. A week ago Sunday, let me give you a little, before we go further, Middle East update week ago Sunday, according to Israel's Arut Sheva news, four suspects were detained at the Temple Mount's golden gate, the eastern gate. Many of you have seen that, that big facade on the, on the eastern wall of the temple, that beautiful gate, the eastern gate, the golden gate. Police officers spotted him, get this, transporting room dividers. <laughs> That caught my attention. That was all in the headline. Four suspects detained at the Temple Mount transporting room dividers. What? I had to read on. These were intended for installation in the ancient structure, the Eastern Gate, recently transformed into the Temple Mount's newest mosque, which violates the treaty. It violates the use. The Muslim Waqf, and that's W-A-Q-F, the Waqf, that's the Jordanian authority on the Temple Mount over spiritual things. Israel has sovereignty in terms of of judicial uh, authority. The police, you always see Israeli police force up there on the Temple Mount. They have that authority, but the Muslim Waqf has spiritual authority over the Temple Mount, and it was given back to them when Israel uh, conquered all of Jerusalem and took it in the six-day war. But the Muslim authority up there has established a new mosque now on the Temple Mount, the fourth one. There are four mosques on the Temple Mount. The new Muslim place of worship has now sprung up under what's called the status quo arrangement, which is no change. The promise of the Muslim authority when they were given back spiritual control over the Temple Mount remarkably was you will not make any changes at that time there was one mosque on the Temple Mount now there's four what's going on here and why is this a big deal It violates the law in Israel as well as the rights of Jews to go up and visit and worship at Judaism's holiest sites. What's the big deal? The walk is violating this agreement. And what they're doing is seeking to obliterate any Jewish claim to the Temple Mount by building as many mosques as possible. Covering it with mosques. It's 35 acres. How many mosques do you need in 35 acres? You know, I mean, there's four there now. Remember the deed of sale. David bought it. This does not belong to the Jordanian authority. It belongs to the people of Israel. Truly it belongs to God. Why does that matter though? I mean really, who cares about 35 acres <laughs> in Israel? Iran does. And if you have been watching and aware of all that's been going on with Iran, think about this. How many of you all remember to the early 1970s when Iran was one of America's best friends in the Middle East? See some hands. At that time, the Shah of Iran was a Western-leaning leader and wanted to Westernize his country. And things were going well in Iran, and there was a great relationship there until the Islamic Revolution. And the Shah was thrown out. And Israel hating extremists took power, and Iran has since become the world's leading state sponsor of terror. The whole agreement, uh, the, the nuclear deal under the Obama administration, which was a, a complete travesty and, and completely ridiculous, and I am thankful it got thrown out, but I'll tell you one of the reasons, well, two reasons why. What was so bad about it? And what does this have to do with the Temple Mount? Stay with me. But the Iranian nuclear deal had two big problems. Number one, it did not deal in the least with Iran's sponsor of terror around the world. So they would get billions of dollars that they could then flow right into all the acts of terrorism that they support. So it didn't deal with that, and secondly, it had a 10-year clause that at the end of 10 years, Iran could enrich all the uranium they wanted. What kind of a treaty is that? So our president, current president, threw it out, and Iran was incensed, angry. On top of that, as they began to re-enrich uranium and now have crossed the threshold that they were even allowed to under that deal, well, on top of that, our president and and our government has increased sanctions on Iran. And we don't think a whole lot about that, but these sanctions are the most crippling sanctions that have ever been put on Iran. And it is devastating to their culture, to their society. Which is why you see Iran attacking boats in the Straits of Hormuz. If you see that in the news, if you're aware of that, they're attacking boats. And they're doing it very carefully. No one's been killed. By the way, that's why President Trump pulled back in, in a retaliatory attack. Because he realized 150 people would be killed, and on this side we would say, well, you know what, they deserve it for what they're doing. No, they haven't killed anybody. And that would just ratchet up the whole thing. Anyway, I'm getting political here. Let me back up a bit. Iran is playing chess. It was invented in Persia. You know, chess was. So they're playing chess with the world. They have sidled up to Russia. They have sidled up to China. They have some world powers in their back pocket now working with and for them. Why? Because of oil. Which, by the way, the United States does not need. Did you know that for the first time in history we're the greatest oil producer on the planet? We don't need oil from the Middle East anymore. We're fine. (laughs) I couldn't have imagined that ten years ago. But that's the case. So, all for the oil, all for the power, you've got Iran, Russia. Iran and Russia? Well, that's interesting if you read Ezekiel's prophecies. And I won't get into that tonight. But all of this is going on. Here's my point it is all about 35 acres of land in Israel, it is all about the Temple Mount. That is Iran's target. That is the world's target. It's remarkable. God said, Zechariah 12, verse 2, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. But you know what's going to happen? The Savior in His return, will ascend the mount. Ezekiel chapter 43, just listen to this. Verse 4 says, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever, and the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry, by their corpses, the corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold, or their door beside my doorpost, and with only the wall between me and them. And they have defied my, defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger." But down in verse 12 it says, This is the law of the house, the Beit, the temple. Its entire area on top of the mountain, all around, shall be most holy. And that's a promise. And that's a prophecy. And that is coming. That's God's intent. Back in Psalm 68, David penned Psalm 68 in honor of the mount in ascendancy to the mount. As they were bringing up the Ark of the Covenant, they came up, they were ascending, and it's a psalm of ascendancy. But gang, it sings about the ascending Christ. The psalm ultimately is all about the ascendancy of Jesus. Watch this. Chapter 68, Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God arise. Whenever we sing that song, will you just remember... This is where it comes from. Let God arise. Let God arise. This is saying, let God ascend the Temple Mount. Let Him ascend to Jerusalem. Let God arise, David writes. Let His enemies be scattered, and let those who hate Him flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, drive away. As wax melts before the fire, let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exalt before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. And by the way, as this was being sung, that's exactly what David was doing. He was exulting. The word exalt literally means to praise with jumping. And David danced with all his might before the ark as it was being brought up. And he exalted in the Lord, even as the psalm says, sing, verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to His name, lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exalt before Him. Now, I hate to tell you this, but if you're reading a King James translation, which though it's Elizabethan, is still a fantastically good translation, it's wrong on this count. Verse 4, in the king james it says lift up a song for him who rides through the heavens well but i read it rides through the desert so which one is it if you look it up the word is Arabah. the Arabah is the desert araba araboth in the hebrew it's it's a desert step or plain And so the word is very clearly used, and it's only used of the Arabah. In fact, you see it in some Bibles, other places where it's not even translated desert, it's just the word Arabah. Let the Arabah rejoice. So this is about him riding through the desert, and it's important to understand, and the context will make this clear, what he's referring to is the God who rides through the desert. Or who, at David's time, who had already, who rode through, through the desert with His people, Israel. And it's very important to understand that as we'll see later on. Verse 1 also that says, let God arise can be with God arise. With God arise! Or let God arise. It can go either way in the Word. But it's also not the first time that that phrase was spoken. So keep your finger here and go back to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10. David knew his history. In Numbers chapter 10, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, having camped at Mount Horeb for 21 months, Exodus 19, are now ready to roll. If you hear that the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, no, they didn't. They were two years getting over to and camping out at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and then they were 38 years wandering in the wilderness after that. But after their 21-month stay, Exodus 19, as they're getting ready to go, watch this, Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. And then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. If you'll skip over to verse 33. Verse 33, Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord, three days' journey, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And then it came came about when the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, or let God arise and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. Sound familiar? David just quoted it in Psalm 68. This is where he got it. And when it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. And this became the pattern. This was the call of Moses. As the cloud would lift, that was the sign it was time to move out. Time to break camp. Time to be mobile. So the cloud would lift and they would break down the tabernacle and everybody their tents and everybody got all ready to go. And then Moses would cry out, Let God arise! Rise up, O Lord! And they would lift everything up and head out. And when they got to the campsite, which they knew because the cloud stopped, God stopped, in, in other words, to say here, then Moses would say, Return, O Lord! And I really like that. It's it's a pattern. Rise up when they set out. Return, O Lord, when they settled in. It's a great way to begin and end every journey. Every journey. Whether it's a journey of 38 years. Rise up, O Lord. Return, O Lord. Or if it's a journey from morning to evening every day. Wouldn't it be great to hit the threshold of your house? You're on the way out the door and you say, Rise up, O Lord. Let your neighbors hear that. What's he saying? Rise up, O Lord. (laughs) Rise up, O Lord. And then when you return to your house in the evening, return, O Lord. You know, begin and end with Him. It's a great phrase just to go the distance from Obed-Edom's house to the Temple Mount. Rise up, O Lord, and return, O Lord. What we're talking about here is a faithful follower's song. Someone who's looking to the Lord at departure and looking to the Lord at return or at settling time. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8 says, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And of course Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Whether rising up or returning, He's there and He goes with us. So this is sung as the ark is being carried up. And then David writes, verse 5, a father of the fatherless. A judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. And I wonder tonight, is that you? Are you any of these? Fatherless? Widow? Perhaps lonely? A prisoner? God is in it with you. God is in it for you. And I think when you, when you start with let God arise and you look at the, the wonder of God and who He is and the glory and grandeur of God as they're going up and they're worshiping Him to all of a sudden recognize the tenderness of a father, a judge, a home builder, and a rescuer. It's pretty remarkable in this context. And if you think more about it, it's pretty remarkable that God, who is as awesome as He is, cares about the lonely, has an eye on the widow, is a father to the fatherless, and is the one who releases the prisoner. See, that's His character. Yes, great and mighty and awesome is He, but that's also His character, His nature. God of compassion and love and concern and care Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. On the other hand, if you want to be left out, lonely, lost, or locked up, then verse 6 tells you how to go about it. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So you can do that. You can reject the hand of a father who would be a father to you in a fatherless position. You can slap away the hand of one who would be husband to the widow. You can ignore the one who's building a place for the lonely or breaking the bars for the prisoner. You can say, I don't want that. But, but to the rebellious is a parched land. Those who reject God will remain thirsty. Now, if you look around in the world, that that, that may preach well. Reject God and you'll be thirsty. But you might look around and see rebellious people doing fine. A lot of people doing really well and have zero relationship with God. A lot of people don't really seem seem that hungry or thirsty. They're just cruising along with their big bucks and their mansions and things going fine. So clearly, some people get away with it. Listen, there is a thirst unquenched. There is a hunger unsatisfied. There is a search for meaning and for life. And it may be blocked out with the noise and busyness of the day, but get someone alone at night with their head hitting the pillow and the mind begins to think and wonder and consider. Praise report. I I sent out a prayer request because my father went into a skin doctor and found out that a little mole on his head was what they call a nodular melanoma which is the most aggressive, dangerous kind of skin cancer. So the test came back, and they went through. He just had a brain MRI the other day. had a PET scan today, and I haven't heard of the news about the PET scan, but I got the news about the brain MRI yesterday, and that is that this, this mole hadn't gone anywhere. It hadn't penetrated the skull. It, hadn't, it, it literally is superficial, which shocked the doctor. He was, he was blown away. He said, when he sees this kind of thing, typically this is, I mean, these are the ones, because people don't check moles that often, and when they do, oftentimes if it's a melanoma, it's just too late. My dad had had this on his head for nine months. It's like, go to the doctor, Dad. Anyway, it's nothing. It's removable. Now we don't we gotta find out from the pet scan. Did anything go anywhere else? And he just came out of a a very successful treatment for prostate cancer, so so this was just a shock for all of us. Let me tell you something. In talking to my dad, not a big deal. He's eighty-three years old. He's like, son, if this is the one that takes me, okay. All right. He's not lying there in bed at night thirsty or hungry or worried about what's going to happen when it's all said and done. I guarantee you, people who reject God are. The rebellious do have those thoughts. Oh, they may try to push it away and fill their life with things that look like meaning and look like success, but when it's quiet, when they're alone, the thoughts come rushing in. And Jesus said, John seven you've heard it many times If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Which is why a nodular melanoma is not a big deal for a follower of Jesus Christ, regardless of the outcome. Because you drink of the Lord, and you are satisfied. By the way, God as Father, Judge, Home Builder, and Rescuer, in these verses, it beautifully describes... Jesus in the Nazareth synagogue Luke chapter 4 he quoted Isaiah 61 verse 1 the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord so this is our God and only the rebellious dwell in a parched land verse 7 the song continues oh God when you went forth before your people when you marched through the wilderness Selah the earth quaked verse 8 the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God the God of Israel you shed abroad a plentiful rain oh God pause there for a second I think that's really a funny place to put a Selah Because it's mid sentence. You would think if you're going to have a pause that you'd finish a thought, like only the rebellious dwell in a parched land, think about that. Musical interlude, and then you're on to the next thought. But no, he's mid sentence. When you march through the wilderness, Selah. (laughs) Why is it there? I don't exactly know, but I, I know this about these Selah's in the Psalms. They're always a pause. Sometimes they're a pause of rest, sometimes of contemplation, or sometimes they're a pause for effect, which is what I suspect is going on right here. And read that way, oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earthquakes! And there is a pause there to, to you know, there's a building effect in waiting to the next word. And what's being emphasized here by that selah is the weight of God's glory, his earth shaking glory as he goes on before his people. And in verse eight, what David does here is masterfully mesh lines from yet another song. Okay, so he's already borrowed from Moses' uh, stand up and go call, rise up, O Lord. He's already borrowed from Numbers 10, from Torah, but now he borrows from another song, and it's very interesting, it's the song of Deborah and Barak, not Obama. (laughs) Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5, and by the way, I don't think Obama would want to be associated with this Barak because he's kind of a coward. He wouldn't go to war unless Deborah went. You know, I don't know if it's so he could hide behind her skirts. I'm not sure if I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But the song of Deborah and Barak and their victory at Mount Tabor over Sisera and the Canaanites. And you can read that story in Judges chapter 5. I won't take the time for it. But they sing a song of praise to God after the Canaanites and their commander Sisera were completely routed before the armies of Israel. And here's a part of that song, Judges 5 verse 4. Lord, when you went out from Seir... When you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, and the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. Note that, verse 8, the earth quaked, the heavens dropped rain at the presence of God. This is where he's drawing it from. And furthermore, Judges 5, verse 5, The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai, at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel it's all interwoven so beautifully the scriptures what Deborah and Barak sing of is what had happened prior to them the the, the quaking at at Sinai and now David is drawing from Deborah and Barak also referring to the quaking at Mount Sinai and when Deborah and Barak sing it they sing the, the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord this Sinai this Sinai what Sinai? They may have been referring to Mount Tabor because it was at the base of Mount Tabor where this great battle took place. But if you've seen Mount Tabor in Israel, they call it the Camelback Mountain because it's just a little hump. In Washington State, that's no mountain. That's a hill, man. Rainier's a mountain. Baker's a mountain. Tabor, it's a bump. And so they said, this Sinai, and the point is that wherever the Lord is, it's as holy as Sinai. And keep that in mind. When it, wherever the Lord is, His massive holiness that, that shook Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, wherever the Lord is, the tiniest of hills is Mount Sinai. At, at least in terms of holiness. And then David continues with verse 9, saying, you shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance, which is the land, when it was parched. So you confirmed your land inheritance, your your inheritance for the people when the land was dry and parched. That word parched also is translated weary. So you confirmed your inheritance, your people, when they were weary. It it works both ways. And you shed abroad. Again, that that plentiful rain, O God. Confirming inheritance, verse 10, your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness For the poor, O God. And again, the distance from His glory and grandeur and greatness to the poor. It's amazing. It's like He goes flying right past the rich and the well-to-do and those who don't need Him. By the way, if you're rich and well-to-do and you need God, good. Good. Everybody needs Him. Truly, there is nobody who doesn't need Him. But oftentimes, when we're self-sufficient, we don't think we need Him. But God launches from the heights of His glory all the way to the most impoverished of humanity. That's His care. That's His compassion. He bends very low. And He cares for everyone. He cares for those who are parched. For those who are weary. And He provides in His goodness. Now, I love this picture in verses 9 and 10 of the plentiful rain. I was thinking about it today, especially this afternoon when we have one of those hard rains that are so rare in Washington. And what's funny to me is I, I was studying this and I, and I jotted this down, just thinking about growing up in Southern California. I loved a good heavy rain. When it did rain in California, it, it was heavy rain. Typically, when it rains here, it's kind of that namby pamby little misty rain. it's just annoying, and you got to keep wiping your glasses every two minutes. You know, that California rain just like, and your glasses are drenched, and it's like, okay, I can't see anything anyway. But we had that today. And I just marveled because I knew I was going to talk about this. I love what the rain does. The heavy rain. David was sitting there in the living room and the rain was just pounding down. It was around 4, 4.30 this afternoon. And he goes, Dad! What, David? It's summer! <laughs> what is this? You know, just, just coming down. I love that. I love that rain. And I always have... Because again, growing up in Southern California, when it rained good and heavy like that, I knew it was going to wash out the smog. I knew at least for a few days as a kid growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, my chest would stop hurting. That's not right. A a six-year-old's chest shouldn't hurt. But it would just wash out the smog and the heat would go away and the steam would come off the streets as the rain was pounding down. And then when the rain stopped, it was cool and it was clear unusually for Southern California. And I think about this is what the Spirit does when we come together on a Wednesday night. Or on a Sunday morning. Or when we gather on a Wednesday morning with some brothers for prayer. Or when we get together in our homes with with brothers and sisters in a small group or when some of our sisters get anytime we gather two or three gathered in His name anytime we're in prayer before Him or worship before Him or in His word together it's like heavy rain that washes out the smog And, and I walk out going I breathe I breathe better than when I came in But David now, watch this, he draws more images from Deborah's victory as he continues in verse 11, The Lord gives the command, the women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. Which is a great line, if you know the story of Deborah. And it's not that Deborah divides the great spoil. Oh, she did, but she didn't remain at home. She went out to battle with Barak. She was encamped with the armies of Israel. So it's not talking about Deborah. Who is this she who stays at home? And there's a very interesting story here that was part of the conquest of the, of the fighting of the commander named Sisera, or who I like to call Sisera. <laughs> this guy fled the battle. When it was going badly for the Canaanites, he ran away. He came running up to she who remained at home. You may remember the story. She said, come, turn aside to my tent. And so he came in. She gave him a cup of milk and tucked him in. Her name was Jael. And then Jael came up next to Sisera hiding under a rug and drove a tent peg through his head. Dead. I think the Bible says something along the lines of he woke up dead, which I love that. (laughs) I also look at this and I think, you who are at home, she who remains at home will divide the spoil. Well, she divided the spoil all right, cracked his noggin right in half. And so it's referring to that. David's drawing this marvelous victory over the Canaanites. He's drawing this into the story. He's, he's adding this into the song. And then verse 13, which continues to draw off the story. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. Oh, that sounds sounds really peaceful, right? You got the sheepfolds. Just sheep chilling. Got the dove. You know, which is always a symbol of peace. So you've got a symbol of prosperity in the sheep and and peace with the dove and prosperity because the wings are are silver and gold. So this is a beautiful picture. And normally it would be if it wasn't a backhanded slam against the tribe of Reuben. What are you talking about? When Deborah called for all Israel to come and fight against the Canaanites, one tribe pulled a no-show, the tribe of Reuben. They stayed home in their sheepfolds, and so she wrote, and David quotes, when you lie down among the sheepfolds, you're like wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. Judges 5.16 in Deborah's song, why do you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of of Reuben were great searchings of heart. In other words, they were sitting there trying to decide, should we go fight or should we stay home? Should we go fight, or should we care for our sheep? Should we just stick around? Let's have meetings about it. Let's have discussions about it. Let's form a committee and take some time and process the whole thing. And by then, the battle's over. Are we ever that way? It takes so long to deliberate, and the battle's over. Do you ever personally hide out in the sheep pen, or, or do you stand up to be counted when God arises? Well, again, that's the background of what's being sung. Verse 14, When the Almighty scattered the kings there, referring to this battle, it was snowing in Zalman. And and people are mixed on this. Was it actually snowing in Zalman? Zalman was a place, the southern peak, they believe the southern peak of Mount Gerizim. So on the southern end of this battleground where this was fought, and at the southern peak of Mount Gerizim, there, there could be snow. It depends on the time of year and, and what was going on. So some say maybe he's saying that there was snow on Mount Gerizim. Or possibly he's saying that the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of Israel, were, were scattered like falling snow all over the place. Their bones scattered white like white falling snow. He may just be saying that the Canaanites were a bunch of flakes. I don't know. <laughs> But whatever he specifically means, David now is turning his attention. Follow him. He's turning his attention to the mountains. Mentioning Zalman. Mentioning the peaks of Mount Gerizim. And in verse 15 he says, A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Bashan is one of your big boys in Israel. Okay, that's a large mountain. Uh, Hermon is even bigger. You've got Hermon, you've got the mountains of Israel, Bashan, these mighty mounts that, that rise up high, not like the little hump of Tabor, but actual mountains that are there in Israel. And what's interesting is he continues saying, Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for His abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there Forever. So the peaks of Bashan dwarf the little mountain ridge of Moriah. And again, Hermon dwarfs them all, but it's Moriah. It's the peak. It's the ridge of Mount Moriah. That's where God chose for himself. That's what God chose. And David is singing, and all the mountains are envious. Great Bashan, even greater Hermon, they're envious of little Moriah. Because that is where God said, I want to put my name. This is where the Lord has chosen Zion, Jerusalem, to be His eternal dwelling. Psalm 87, verse 1, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Which is why even if you're coming from Mount Hermon in the highest peak, when you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. Because it is the place of God's abode. It's it's another Sinai. In fact, look at verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Why is Sinai mentioned again? Because wherever God is, it's Sinai holy. He makes it holy. And it's not the height of the mountain, it's the glory of God who's present there. And God chose Jerusalem. Note this, no wonder the false religious systems and the world systems keep trying to dominate Jerusalem. No wonder the Muslim waqf is trying to build more mosques at the place that God has chosen for His temple to be. Satan will do everything he can to erase the memory of the Jewish people from Israel. He will not succeed. Or to usurp the authority of the people of Israel over Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. He'll do whatever it takes. And he will not succeed. Now at this point you may be wondering, how is this a Savior psalm? I mean, there's some interesting things here and it's fascinating to draw into the history of Israel and Deborah and Barak and, and even Moses and the people, but, but where's the Savior in all this? Here's where we see Him. Verse, seven, verse 18, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, or you might know this, bears our burdens can also be loads us with blessing. <laughs> I like that better. But He can bear my burdens, but I'd really rather be loaded with blessings, if you're asking me. The God who is our salvation, and then He has a law. So here's the pause in the first two parts. Verses 18 and 19. As David in the ark ascended Mount Moriah, he recalls now, He talks about specifically, He recalls and He also speaks of two ascensions. Two specific ascensions. If you're reading verse 18, you've ascended on high, you've led captive your captives, you've received gifts among men, and that's exactly how Jerusalem was taken. It was called Jebus, home of the Jebusites. And David conquered Jebus and, and took it over. In fact, 2 Samuel 5.7 Also, 1 Chronicles 11, verse 5 says, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. It was Jebus. And they captured it and took it. And and that's a fascinating story that I won't do now. But that's one ascension. So remember, get the picture. David is bringing up the ark. And as part of this glorious song, they're now going up to the high point of Moriah there in Zion, in Jerusalem, heading up to where... The ark is going to rest in the tabernacle of David. And as they go up, he talks about, he remembers his own conquest of going up and taking Jebus. So now Jerusalem is the city of David. And so it's a reference to that, the conquering of the Jebusites. When you have ascended on high and led captive your captives and you receive gifts, that is uh, plunder from among men but it also speaks not looking back at the conquering of Jerusalem but it speaks looking ahead to the ascension of Jesus up to heaven and there's a third there's a third looking back to Jebus looking to Jesus ascending to heaven as he would from the mount of olives and there's a third but keep the third in mind we'll come back to it Luke 24:51 Says, while he that is Jesus was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you, literally raptured from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. He who's gone up, He's going to come back down. He who you saw ascend, He will descend again. But something happened. You Bible students are aware of this when Jesus ascended. Keep your finger here and go over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. For here we find the New Testament reference to Psalm 68 and it gives us the clearer picture and you have to have this picture before you go into the second half of the psalm which by the way won't take long when we get there. But Ephesians chapter 4, Paul refers to what happened when Jesus ascended back to heaven. Look at it. Beginning in verse seven, Ephesians 4 verse 7. Paul says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth, that is Hades, Hades. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So what's happening here is by the Holy Spirit, and and mark this, Paul's not just giving an object lesson. He's giving the prophetic application of what David wrote in Psalm 68, 18. And that is that the psalm poignantly implicates Jesus as the subject of the psalm. Let God arise. That's Jesus. Jesus. And He had to arise before He ascended. It's referring to Him, and the song truly is about Him. Whether David fully comprehended that or not, this is a song of Messiah. And He ascended into heaven, and when He did so, what Paul's telling us there, is in His death, between His death and His resurrection, He descended. Not into hell. Hell is the eternal fire. Hell is the lake of fire. We talked about in Revelation 20. He descended into Hades, which is the holding place, was, and He led captivity captive. That is, all those in paradise who were awaiting their redemption until it was blood bought by Jesus on the cross. He went down, He descended, He led out the captives, and ascended. So that now we can say, as as Paul says, that the spirits of anyone who dies in Jesus resides with Jesus immediately in heaven. That's where you go when you die in Christ. 2 Corinthians five six. Therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And so he led out all those who were waiting for redemption, waiting for the opportunity to be led out. He, as I've said many times, effectively shut down paradise hades hades as jesus describes in luke 16 has a paradise and a great impassable gulf and a torment side all that were on the paradise side of hades or in hebrew sheol were waiting for their release and jesus fought it and home they went the torment side is still tragically open for business but no longer, when a person dies, do they go to Sheol if they die in Christ. They go immediately, the Spirit goes immediately to be home with the Lord. But get this, and it's even more important. Jesus did something else. He didn't just lead captivity captive in, in ascending then himself, he did something else amazing. Ephesians chapter 4, again, verse 8 says, It says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts. Wait a minute. Psalm 68.18 says, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. So David says you have received gifts, and indeed, when he conquered Jebus, he did the plunder. He conquered it. He ascended. He received gifts. But Paul translates, You gave gifts to men. Is Paul just playing loose with the language? The reality is if you look back, both gave and received both appear in the Jewish targums. What's a targum? It's the oral tradition that's written down. So the oral tradition of the Jews for a long time and then ultimately got written down says he either gave or he received and it depends on which targum you look at because they use both. So it could go either way. If you read this in the Masoretic text, which is our Hebrew Bibles, well, then you would see that He received gifts. You have received gifts among men. If you read it in the Septuagint, which is the New Testament translation, it's He gave gifts. And I believe it is both. And I believe there's a reason why God left it open to either gave or received. Why is that? Psalm 68 is a psalm of... Military triumph. It is a psalm of ascendancy, uh, having triumphed over the enemy. When Jesus ascended, it was a military triumph, if you will, after the death, burial, and resurrection. He ascended and he was triumphant over death and the grave and Satan and evil and all the rest. So it was a triumphant ascendancy. And the gifts mentioned when you are triumphant in war, the gifts are the spoils which is what David got when he conquered Jebus, right? Got the spoils of war. The gifts are spoils. But listen, if you go all the way back to Genesis 14, there was a battle, I'm just using this for an example, there was a battle of kings that Abraham went to. Abraham and his crack squad of 300 household servants Went up against these kings and their armies, and he was victorious in this guerrilla warfare, and he received the spoils of war. But listen to the description Abraham brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. What's the point? The people are also the spoils the people are the spoils of war understanding that looking back at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 he gave gifts to men and skipping down to verse 11 he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints for the working of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith in other words the gifts are the people are you with me The spoils of this victory of Christ, even in His ascension, leading captivity captive, He let out spoils. To Jesus, the gifts were the people. But with that, He gifts the people. So, Jesus Himself receives the people as gifts. His spoils, His plunder for the victory. And then He gifts them, what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4, with His Spirit, and with spiritual gifts, and then He gives them back to the world and the church. Are you with me? You're kind of staring at me here. Have I lost anybody? He won the war. He's got the spoils. The spoils are the people, but the spoils are also what Jesus gives. So He has the people. He receives them. He pours Himself, His Spirit, into them. He gives them gifts, and then He gifts the church and the world with these spoils. Which is to say, you're a bunch of gifts. We were talking about this briefly earlier today. I, I wish that we in the church would take more time to look at each other as gifts as opposed to annoyances. Can you imagine if every time we had a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, we said, you, my friend, are a gift from God. You are a gift in my life. You're making my life hard right now. Well, God's obviously doing something in my heart, so you're a gift. You know, you bring me great joy, so you're a gift. We are given. We are the gifts of the spoils of the war, of the victory of Jesus at Calvary. We become the gifts who are gifted to be gifts to one another. By this they will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, right? That's gifted talk. And you are a gifted people because you have the Spirit of God living within you as a gift. You have the spiritual gifts of God in you as gifts. And so we are to one another and we still are in this world. Though the world may not understand, though the darkness does not comprehend it, we are still gifts. And Jesus paid for this, bought with His blood. Colossians 1.13 He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so, Psalm 68.18, yes, Jesus received gifts as He ascended, but He also, Ephesians 4, gave gifts. And both of them work, and both speak of the work of Christ. By the way, one more thing on this, and then we're going to launch into this final section and finish it quickly. After David, note this, after David brought up the ark to the Temple Mount, This psalm, Psalm 68, written for the occasion, did in fact become a song of Israel. A song so common the people knew it and sang it and knew it well, it became a Jewish institution and it was sung, this song, Psalm 68, was sung at the temple every year annually during one of the great feasts of Israel. That feast just so happened to be Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, That we call Pentecost, when the gift of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit began. So it all ties in here, I think, marvelously. Now, remember, verse 1 let God arise, but it can also be translated with God arise. And we come into the second section, which is all about the ascendancy of his people. Verse 20 God is a God to us, God is to us a God of deliverances. And to God the Lord, note this, to God the Lord belong escapes from death. I point out to you that both deliverances and escapes are in the plural form. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment. But Psalm sixty-eight verse twenty says God is to us a God of deliverances and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Does that not uh, imply that some will escape death? If there are escapes from death, there's there's got to be some people who will then (laughs) escape from death, right? Does anybody come to mind who escaped death? Well, Jesus didn't actually. Jesus died. So He didn't escape death. But Enoch... Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took Him. He didn't die. He just went. Just went home. Elijah... Blasted out of here on a fiery chariot. Rocking and rolling his way through the skies. That must have just been awesome. But he didn't die. So there's a couple who have experienced deliverances, escapes from death. But you know what? How about the entire raptured church when that happens? Everyone alive at the time of His coming will experience escapes from death. And again, it's escapes, plural, deliverances. Plural meaning many deliverances. Many escapes. A plurality of people all escaping from death. Which is why Jesus said in Luke twenty-one thirty-six, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. There's an escape coming. And we may have finished the Revelation study and it didn't happen yet, but I guarantee you there's an escape coming. There are escapes from death, deliverances. I, I got an email from a sister. She, she doesn't attend the bridge. She lives out of the area, but she listens online and she studies along. And she, she wrote to me that she was really discouraged. Because she, she heard a teacher, I won't name this teacher, but this teacher was refuting Mormonism, and it was excellent teaching, very, very biblical. So she started thinking maybe this was someone she could listen to and study with. And then she heard his teaching on the rapture, where he completely, uh, he, he just destroyed it in his teaching. Now, this is a farce, this isn't true, this isn't what the Bible teaches. And he went to Matthew 24 to say, see, it's just like in the days of Noah, that those who are taken are taken into judgment. So I had to explain. I had to go back and send her the Greek words and and send her an email but and a bunch of verses. And we went through this. And one of the things I told her, and I tell you tonight, that when it comes to the rapture of the church, when it comes to escapes and deliverances from death, my friends, it's not just an outside, bizarre, fringe idea. This is throughout the Scriptures. The idea of a people being caught up to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord is throughout the scriptures. It's not one verse here or one verse there. It is a preponderance of witnesses and testimony and evidence that this is going to happen. And even Matthew 24, talking about those who are taken away like those who are taken in the ark, well, the word taken there is airo, which means taken into judgment or cease to exist. But the very next word when he says, Two men are are in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. You guys know this. That word is paralambano, which means to be received unto. Which is the word Jesus used when He said, if I go prepare a place for you, John 14, I will come receive you unto myself. Paralambano. So there is a rapture of the church. There are escapes from death. There are deliverances. Don't be discouraged by cynics and skeptics and critics. Read the book. Because the answer is here. There are escapes from death. Verse 21, Surely God will shatter the head of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who goes on His guilty deeds. Oh, i got to share this with you. I, gotta, I have a friend who's coming in this weekend who was uh, interned with me in student ministry back in California. And he's coming this weekend just to say hi. And so uh, he said, Hey, we'll be swinging in. This weekend to attend church. And I said, cool, wow, good luck recognizing me after all these years. Actually, aside from the hair, I'm not that different. He he knew me back when, believe it or not, I had quite a head of hair. And he said, well, I have just about zero hair, so let's see if you can pick me out of the crowd. (laughs) So I wrote back to him, hair is overrated. And he said, so what I heard is that God only made a few perfect heads and all the rest of them he covered with hair. I like that. (laughs) I like that. That's good. Those who have their hairy crown who go around on their guilty deeds. Verse 22, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. Wait a minute. Who? The enemies. The Canaanites who died at the base of Bashan. The enemies of the Lord. Those who are rebellious against the Lord. I I will bring them back. Verse 23, buckle up. Hold on. That your foot may shatter them in blood ouch or literally that you may bathe your foot in their blood yeah the tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies as the dogs pick at the bones and chew at the death and the bodies that's that's some brutal language, but please understand in the context of the psalm and coming from David and what this speaks of, it's not imperialistic war mongering. Oh, we're going to bathe in their blood. That's not it. It's judgment. It's divine judgment. It's the wine press of the wrath of God the Almighty that is referred to here. And by the way, it's here for a reason because we're talking about the ascension of His people. Stay with this, it's not gloating over fallen enemies, it is glorifying the God who judges rightly, justly, and fairly. And as for the enemies, 1 Corinthians 15.26 tells us the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Revelation 20.14 talks about death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. So there is a judgment coming. David references that very judgment in verses 22 and 23. I will bring them back. I will bring them out of the the sea. What's he talking about? The dead will be risen up for judgment, Revelation 20. The sea will give up its dead. And they will be judged. And that's the reference point right here in verse 23. But what happens now is the psalm takes yet another prophetic turn. Remember so far, we've we've heard the cheers of the Israelites bringing up the ark, the song of Deborah and Barak, even of those singing as they proceed up to the temple mount, or, or those singing while they celebrated the feast of weeks. But all of that, all of that procession, all of that ascending speaks of a future ascension. Not the ascension of David, not the ascension even of Jesus up to heaven, but the ascension of Christ Jesus with His people up to Jerusalem. Verse 24, They have seen Your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines, so if you don't like tambourines, get used to it. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord, you who are the, of the fountain of Israel. There's Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them, the princes of Judah in their throng, of the princes of Zebulun, of the princes of Naphtali, your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf, and so will sing the ingathered tribes of Israel as they go up. With Jesus ascending the Temple Mount at that glorious ascension in the return of Christ. All the tribes of Israel gathered together. So, why are only four mentioned? I mean, we see little Benny, we see Judah, we see Zebulun, we see Naphtali, just four of the twelve. Why only those four? Some say, and I think that there's good reason for this, they're representative. So you've got Benjamin and Judah in the southernmost region of Israel. Then you've got Zebulun and Naphtali there in the northernmost region of Israel with the exception of of little Dan, but that wasn't Dan's original allotment. So Zebulun, Naphtali, the northern Galilee, and then... Judah and Benjamin in the southernmost region, and so perhaps they all together these these four tribes represent all of Israel encompassed in between. That's possible. But there's something else. These four areas, Benjamin, Judah, Zebulun and Naphtali, are the primary regions of Jesus ministry. In the Gospels this is where we see Jesus spend the bulk of his time. Matthew 4:13 Leaving Nazareth he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here is... The princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali, the people living in darkness who saw the great light, Jesus Christ, as His ministry burst forth upon the region of the Galilee. But His ministry didn't just stay there, it also went down to the southernmost area of Judah and Benjamin, and what sandwiched right in between those two tribes, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Where Jesus taught Outside of Jerusalem, He baptized. In Jerusalem and the surrounding region, He healed. He died in Jerusalem. He rose just outside Jerusalem. And from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, He ascended. So these, these four tribes speak of the bulk of the ministry of Jesus Christ Himself. And because Jesus did all of this, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, because He did this, The glorious march of this song swells far beyond the ranks of just faithful Israel. Verse 29. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Now, hold it right there. Because of, note what David says, because of your temple at Jerusalem. This has to be prophecy. Why? Because there was no temple at Jerusalem when David wrote this. There was no temple at Jerusalem in David's lifetime. The temple, the first temple, was built by his son Solomon. So it cannot be about David in his lifetime. It has to be looking forward. It has to be bigger. It has to be prophetic. Some might say, well, maybe temple just refers to David's tabernacle, which we know was there. No, the word for temple there is hechal, which is the worship complex or palace. It is the primary word used for the entire temple on the Temple Mount. And David is now referring prophetically. This is a future temple. I believe the millennial temple that he's referring to because, again he says, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. And these kings are of the nations of the world going up to Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom to worship Jesus and bring gifts to Him there at the temple complex. Zechariah 6, verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And by the way, I guarantee you when he does, there's not going to be a mosque in sight. Now, verse 30 makes a final mention of three types of rebellious people who are opposed to joining the throng of worshipers of God. Verse 30, rebuke the beasts in the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Wow. Wow. What in the world is he talking about? The beasts and the reeds, the herd of bulls, and the you're trampling underfoot pieces of silver in the sky. What is, real quickly, first of all, it's those who stand against God. Okay, the beasts of the reeds. Beasts of the reeds. Crocodiles. Hippopotamuses, perhaps. From where? Egypt. So rebuke those of Egypt. What's Painted here is a very interesting picture of Israel's most ancient rebellious enemy, Egypt, the beasts of the reeds. And along with that, what is Egypt in the Hebrew scriptures but a picture of the world? The world in rebellion against God. And so he says, rebuke them, those who would stand against God in rebellion. And then he says, "And the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples trampling pieces of silver, what in the world is that? Bulls in a china shop. <laughs> who are these bulls? And, and why are they trampling silver? Note this. Silver is the coin. It is the color of redemption. He's speaking of those who trample redemption. So those who stand against God, the beasts of the reeds, and those who stomp on their own redemption. Why is silver the color of redemption? Because of Numbers 18, verse 16. God said, all the firstborn of man and animal, they're mine. They belong to me. But God is not into child sacrifice. So what do you do with the firstborn son or daughter that belongs to God? What do you do? You redeem them. Numbers 18 16, As to their redemption price from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels of silver. Those who trample silver like stupid bulls are those who would stomp on their own redemption. Hebrews 10.28, "...anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy." on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Listen, you are not going to march up the hill in that grand procession if you stand opposed to God like a beast in the reeds or if you trample underfoot if you stomp on your own redemption or, number three, if you savor war. If you savor war, he has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Fellow gifts, James said in chapter four, verse one. Yakov, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source? Your, is it not your pleasures that wage war in your members? Why do we have problems? In relationships, in church, why do we war with one another, especially in the church? But even just in the world roundabout, what is the source of conflict? It's me. Well, it's not me for your conflict, but you know you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Rick's the source of conflict! No, no. It's, it's what's within all of us. We bring the conflict. And I'll tell you what, man, the older I get, the more aware I am of myself in conflict. That is... When I find myself going head to head with a brother or sister, the more I see what I'm bringing to that conflict, the more I'm recognizing my own weapons that I am wielding against a fellow gift of God. And I got to tell you, I am so thankful for the gifts among us who have helped me see that. And you know who you are, Wes, <laughs> Jake. You know, Jeff, you who have helped me see where I'm, you know, I I said this today, it's so amazing to me, I think that in our conflicts, in our fights, in our wars that we have with different people, if we could step outside and just take a look at at what people are fighting over, we'd think it was ridiculous. That's really silly, that's not worth the time, But, but, but when we're in the fight, oh man, Oh, when my back's up and my weapons are out, look out. I'm fighting. I'm going to take you down. And it can be silly. So, again, just remember, we're not here to fight. We're gifts. Who have been gifted by the Savior to be gifts to one another and gifts in this world. War within, war without, God is not for it. There is holy war. We can talk about that another time. There is righteous war that God calls for that is a part of judgment. But for the most part, God is not about, does not prefer war. He prefers a parade of peace. So verse 31, envoys will come out of, note this, Egypt. Guess what nation is going to be in the millennial kingdom? Egypt will. Surprise, surprise. And Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. That's outside of Israel. That's in addition to Israel. Gentile kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. We pause. Let it sink in. Because what you've just witnessed in the ascendancy of the people of God is Israel, it's Jew, it's the nations of the world, it's Gentile, all under the name of Jesus, coming together and ascending together in the millennial kingdom. That's the ascension described here. A grand parade up to Jerusalem, Israel, and all the nations of the earth marching on to Zion. And then the benediction... Verse 33, to him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient or literally eternal times. Note this, pause, check this out. The psalm begins with him, I pointed out, riding through the deserts, the Arabah. Remember that a couple hours ago? Okay. Riding through the deserts, that's where we started. Now we see him riding through the highest heavens. He's descending to ascend. He who rode through the deserts with His people Israel now rides through the heavens. And you've got to see it that way. You've got to understand the Arabah at the beginning to be amazed with Him riding down, coming down out of the eternal heavens at the end. This has been a process that covers all of that history and now launches us forward to the return of Jesus and the ascension into up to Jerusalem. He rides upon the highest heavens which are from eternal times. Behold, He speaks forth with with His voice, a mighty voice. I suspect it sounds like the sound of many waters because it's Jesus' voice. Verse 34, Ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel and His strength is in the... And if your translation said skies, you might want to write in clouds. His strength is in the clouds. Revelation 1, seven. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Verse 35, O oh God, You are awesome. From Your sanctuary, the God of Israel Himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. And just as David ascended Mount Moriah, so Jesus will ascend the Temple Mount with all His people in tow, when He comes in His glory. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for this psalm, another Savior psalm, to see You ascend. To see You rise, Lord, literally rise from the dead and then ascend from the Mount of Olives. And doing what You did, it, it wasn't enough that You let out the captives, but then You gifted men and women there at Pentecost, pouring out Your Holy Spirit on Your sons and daughters giving us voice, giving us prophecy, giving us spiritual gifts, but better than any of the spiritual gifts, Lord, You gave us Your Spirit that You might fill up all things in the church. God, You are awesome and so good to us. And Lord, I just want to say for myself and I know for so many here tonight, if not every single person, we want to ascend We want to go up. We want to go up. Escaping from death in the rapture of the church. Just like you ascended, just like the Bible says, Lord, you were caught up. So we long, we desire to be caught up. Knowing that that is provided simply by faith in you. We want to ascend. But then with you, we, we want to descend and then ascend up to Jerusalem in that glorious and mighty day when You establish Your Kingdom, build Your Millennial Temple, accomplishing all things. Lord, as we talked about so recently, there is so much before us. So much to look forward to. So much to, like David, exult in. And You've done it all, Jesus. You are the Savior ascending. And we praise You, worship You, And love you tonight in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and worship Him.